0: Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Elizabeth Hagedorn, El Monitor State Department correspondent. Elizabeth and I will be talking about U.S. Iran Envoy Rob Malley's testimony this week before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. What he said about the Iran nuclear deal. Is it going to happen? And we'll also be discussing what we know about President Biden's upcoming trip to the Middle East. My conversation with Elizabeth Hagedorn begins now. Elizabeth, welcome back to On the Middle East.
1: Hi, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Elizabeth, a lot of news this week. You covered the testimony by U.S.-Iran envoy Rob Malley, who spoke before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about the Iran nuclear deal. These negotiations have been going on for about a year. Where does it stand? What did Malley tell us yesterday about the fate of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or as it's known, the Iran nuclear deal?
1: Well, I think the headline coming out of his testimony was that prospects for a revived nuclear deal, and I'm quoting him here, are tenuous at best. He said the Biden administration is still seeking a return to the JCPOA, but that it's uh, prepared for a reality in which no deal is reached. Malley faced uh, grilling from Republican members of the committee. Ranking member Senator Jim Risch asked him When will the administration conclude that it's time to walk away from these indirect talks with Iran? Rish, among others, expressed frustration over the administration's statements from months ago when Biden officials were telling us reporters that a deal needed to be reached within weeks or Iran's nuclear advances would render the original deal meaningless. Malley also took some heat from the committee's chairman, Democratic Senator Bob Menendez, a longtime critic of the Iran deal who pushed Malley to explain just what exactly is the administration's plan B for if the talks in Vienna do indeed fail. Mali said that all options are on the table in what was a veiled reference, I think, to uh, military action, certainly. But he stressed that the diplomatic path is preferable and indicated that the administration would escalate sanctions on Iran. He pointed to the Treasury Department's newly announced counterterrorism sanctions Wednesday, which target what the administration described as an oil smuggling network led by current and former officials from Iran's Quds Force. The Quds Force, of course, is the branch of the IRGC that carries out clandestine operations abroad. And as I'm sure our listeners are well aware, Tehran, as a condition of its return to compliance with the nuclear deal, is demanding the removal of the IRGC from the State Department's list of Foreign terrorist organizations. Now, there's plenty of debate here in Washington about the merits of dropping the label, if that's what it takes to get the deal across the finish line, as we've um, covered at length here at Al Monitor. But if we are to take Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's word for it, well, revoking the designation is no longer under consideration. On the eve of Malley's testimony. Bennett revealed that Biden told him back in April that he would not be removing the IRGC's terror label. Malley didn't confirm this one way or the other, but sort of hinted at it when asked about the FTO designation. He said only that Iran hasn't taken the reciprocal steps or concessions necessary to address the U.S. concerns. So overall, I'd say a fairly pessimistic assessment of the Iran deals deal's future from The chief U.S. negotiator, but I mean, Andrew, how do you see the chances of renewal at this point? Is there room for optimism?
0: Well, there's good politics and low expectations, but I also think there's room for guarded optimism. And I'm sticking with my slight hedge that we may still see a nuclear deal for four reasons. First, the Iranian economy could use a boost, especially now is. We're seeing protests in Iran against food price hikes, and these protests come on top of long-standing hardships, structural economic deficiencies and corruption, all made worse by U.S. sanctions, which were reimposed by the Trump administration in 2018 when it left the Iran nuclear deal, and of course, the effects of the COVID pandemic, which Iran weathered relatively well, but still took its toll like it did throughout the region and the world. Second, the price of oil is about $110 per barrel. Now, Iran is exporting slightly less than 1 million barrels per day and could probably quickly double that to over 2 million once sanctions are lifted. And this is in addition to the desperate need in Iran for investment in the energy sector and access to financial markets, which will come with the lifting of sanctions. So there's a potential economic windfall in the making for Iran at a time it really needs it. Third, there is a new proposal uh, that Iran has given to or gave last week to EU envoy Enrique Mora. He is the one involved in the shuttle diplomacy between uh, the US and Iran to try to work out the, the final sticking points in the deal. He hadn't been to Iran in a few months, but he last week brought back from Iran a new proposal, which supposedly downplays the IRGC issue, which you had mentioned. We'll see what happens, but there is a proposal on the table, which the U.S., I assume, is reviewing uh, as we speak. And fourth, there's a lot of regional diplomacy and cross-traffic going on. There are the Iraq brokered talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran. There's the role of Qatar and Oman to facilitate diplomacy on the Iran nuclear deal, as well as the U.S. intention, and this was repeated by uh, Rob Malley at the hearing this week, that the Iran deal could be complemented by a diplomatic regional effort, including and involving or building upon the Abraham Accords. Now, the regional security piece is both assuring to our regional partners in the event of a deal or in the absence of one. And with regard to the region, President Biden is going to the region at the end of June. What do we know about that visit and what can we expect? This is Biden's first trip to the Middle East as president.
1: Sure. Well, we know Biden will visit Israel. Um, he accepted an invite from Bennett during their phone call in April. It would be his first visit to Israel as president. Um, and, and we expect it to take place in late June, around the time of the G7 summit in Germany. Um, you know, this would be an opportunity to spotlight Israel's role as an important US ally at a time of growing instability within Israel's coalition government. Um, But also keep in mind this trip would come at a time of some tension in the relationship. You have the um, killing of Al Jazeera reporter Shireen Abu Akleh, an American citizen, um, gunned down while covering an an Israeli raid in the West Bank. Also adding to the tensions are Israel's plans for some 4,000 new housing units in West Bank settlements. The administration um, opposes this settlement expansion, you know, having come into office promising a more even-handed approach to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, Al-Monitor has reported then that Biden's visit would um, likely include a a stop in the West Bank where he would meet with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in Bethlehem. Um, Also, I had seen Israeli media reporting prior to Shireen Abu killing that um, Biden was considering a visit to East Jerusalem, a city obviously fraught with tension. Um, So no dates have been announced yet, though I I expect we'll hear that soon. Um, And not only would this be Biden's first visit to Israel and and the Palestinian territories since taking office, but his first uh, trip to the region as president. So there is talk, as you alluded to, of adding at least one other stop to his trip, and that would be Saudi Arabia. This comes as Axios reports that the Biden team is quietly negotiating with Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Egypt on the transfer of two Red Sea islands from Egyptian to Saudi sovereignty. Um, Reportedly, Biden officials see this potential islands transfer deal as one that could build trust between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and perhaps create an opening for normalization of ties between the two. Obviously, were Riyadh to sign on to the Abraham Accords, that would be a major foreign policy win for this administration. So back to this potential Saudi Arabia trip, uh, CNN reported last week that the White House is now working to set up a meeting uh, between Biden and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. I've been hearing some of the same, that a meeting could be held on the fringes of a Gulf Cooperation Council meeting in Riyadh, But I think whatever the circumstances, a Biden-NBS meeting would uh, represent a significant turnaround for a president who, during the campaign, pledged to make Saudi Arabia, as we all remember, a pariah for, among other things, the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And then when Biden came into office, the administration um, released the Intel report linking the Crown Prince to the Khashoggi murder and And so far, Biden has refrained from engaging directly with the prince, who is uh, Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler. So to meet MBS after all of that, and on his turf, no less, uh, would be a major about-face for this president and and would surely cause an uproar among many of his own supporters. Um, A a lot to unpack there, Andrew, Um, why do you think the Biden administration is sort of seeking to lower tensions with Riyadh right now and and even consider this face-to-face meeting with the prince after more than a year of diplomatically isolating him.
0: Well I think events have um, made this this meeting uh, and and the a reset in U.S. Saudi relations uh, a matter of priority. When you look at the Middle East uh, the United States has had three solid strong partners over decades that's Israel Egypt and Saudi Arabia many of the other states too are friends and, and, and allies of the United States but those are the big three uh, and the U.S. has counted on Saudi Arabia and needs to continue to count on Saudi Arabia for a number of things one uh, one of the other top priorities for the administration in addition to Iran has been ending the war in Yemen uh, the Biden administration came in, appointed a, a Yemen envoy. We have a truce that is is holding, as we uh, for almost two months now. Uh, again, we we try to be uh, optimistic, or or and sometimes to keep our optimism in check. But that is really good news. Uh, and any settlement in Yemen depends on the U.S.-Saudi partnership in bringing an end to that terrible war. Uh, and to the immense humanitarian tragedy uh, that the fighting there has caused. So that's number one, you, you need to deal with Yemen, we need to work closely with Saudi Arabia, we've been talking about Iran, well, if we're going to have a, a, a regional deterrent posture, to either complement an Iran nuclear deal, or to, uh, or in the absence of an Iran nuclear deal, uh, a key partner, And that enterprise is, of course, Saudi Arabia. And third is the Ukraine war, which has created a global energy crisis. Saudi Arabia is a major oil exporter, and the U.S. would like to see the kingdom increase oil production and exports, something it has so far refused to do, preferring to operate an existing what's called OPEC plus production agreement quotas. MBS reportedly would even not get on a call with Biden recently. So there's been a lot of friction in U.S.-Saudi ties over the past year, but the Biden administration seems intent on steadying the relationship in order to deal with U.S. regional and international priorities, such as Yemen, Iran, Russia, and Ukraine, as well as seeing if the U.S. can close the deal on getting Riyadh to normalize relations with Israel and expanding the Abraham Accords even further.
1: Really great points there, Andrew. And I I think you nailed it with regard to US interests in Iran and Yemen and of course um, with Ukraine as our team of contributors around the region continues to report Russia's invasion really just continues to reverberate across the Middle East.
0: Elizabeth, a lot to watch and keep an eye on uh, in terms of the news and trends shaping the region. Thank you for joining us today on the, on the Middle East again. It's good to talk with you about these events. And thanks for your coverage of the State Department for our monitor.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate you having me on.
0: We will return after this break.
1: Elizabeth Hagedorn and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series On the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amberin and Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast reading the middle east with Gilles capel you can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms and through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards you can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com as an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis.
0: Thanks to our guest, Elizabeth Hagedorn, and our production team of Beowulf Rocklin and Rosabel Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week, and if you haven't done so... Please sign up for all three of our El Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. And Gilles' guest this week is Israeli-French filmmaker Amos Gitai. And On Israel with Ben Caspit, Ben this week interviews Israeli Deputy Foreign Minister Idan Rohl. And, of course, this podcast on the Middle East. Next week, Amber and Zaman will be here and she will be interviewing another decision-maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com.